Alas, 20 years. 2001, we arrived at the final monastery, Birkin Monastery. And I call it the final monastery because it, indeed, I do not intend to build another one. Although, <laughs> things do happen in life. <laughs> As you recall, Ajahn Pasno had given us advice at the Princeton Monastery that it was an intermediate monastery and not to get too committed to it. But at the same time, we were in a position of needing to modify it for our purposes because we weren't a family living in a house. So we really did deconstruct it somewhat and we needed to sell that place as well. And we needed to sell it in order to buy the next place. This place was much more expensive and the previous monastery would only provide a certain small portion of the costs this is the way it works in monastic life. There's just all kinds of serendipitous aspects. We could call it karma. So here's one. I had, in the midst of this search and this finding this place, which was a, it's over 10,000 square foot building, which was about 70% complete in the middle of nowhere, literally it is about 10 kilometers to the nearest place, which is a little fishing resort, which is shut down most of the year. It is vacant land for miles and miles. But it fulfilled so many ideal points for us that we had written down ahead of time. It had water on it. It had trees on it, although they were a lot of stumpy trees as well because it was... It was not a pretty property, but we knew that it would grow back. And indeed, over the next 20 years, it has grown back. And in the meantime, we had maxed out our amount of money. And now the amount of money that we had was more than I ever thought we would have. There were some very large, generous donations, but it just barely covered the primary cost of the place. And I couldn't just stay here and supervise it, I still had to go out and teach and roam around. So I'd gone off to Calgary to do a 10-day retreat there. And it, every now and then, every few days, I would check on the phone to see if the, how the negotiations were going for the process of buying this. And the retreat ended, and we negotiated on the price and so forth. And uh, I stayed overnight at a man's house that I had never met before. I was introduced by... Pavaro, and it was a nice house in Calgary, and the man was very, very nice, and uh, I said, can I use your phone? And I, he said, sure, and I made a call to the group that was trying to negotiate the purchase of the monastery, and I said, well, so what, what's the status? And they gave me the price that had been offered and accepted, and I said, I think we have to let it go. We just don't have enough money. It's the, the finishing costs in this thing is going to be hundreds of thousands of dollars. And it's such an ideal property, but we're past our comfort point. We can't guarantee this. And I said to Stephen, who was on the end of the phone, so I think you just have to call him up and say, let it go. I hung up the phone and I walked into the next room and the gentleman said to me, I happened to overhear your conversation. 
about the monastery. And I'd like to offer you $100,000 right now. And I'll call my bank because I don't want you to think it's just a, an offer that might not come through. So I'm going to call my bank right now and secure it. So he did. And I walked back to the phone five minutes later, phoned back Steve, and I said, it's a go. I got another 100000 <laughs> So we, this is how it worked, just like that. It was meant to be. All of the karmic forces are converging on this. It would be a place where we could put all the resources that we had into, and it would be adequate for all foreseeable time. And it is off-grid in the middle of nowhere. One of the karmic fortunate things is that I spent part of my childhood in an off-grid resort, which was owned by my parents. It was a kind of a dude ranch in the summer and a ski resort in the winter. And I, at 10 and 11 years old, was in charge of turning on and off the generator certain time at night. We couldn't afford to run the generator 24 hours a day. So I was completely familiar with large propane tanks, generators, getting your own water, making sure that the creek doesn't freeze, pumping. All of these things were familiar to me from my childhood. And so the idea of living off-grid in a remote place was nothing new to me. Of course, I had lived off-grid by in the shacks but we didn't produce any electricity or anything like this. But this is a major place. So we had plans for 25 people. And that was my comfort range. I, I thought that a maximum of 25 people, perhaps up to eight monastics and 16, 17 lay people. So that was our plan. And then we had all kinds of fortunate things happen. One was that a Vietnamese lady who used to come to the Princeton Monastery, who was actually in a, had advanced cancer, said when we, she heard that we were planning on buying an, another monastery, she said, my son is an architect and I volunteer him to design your next monastery. She hadn't talked to him yet, but she just gave her son to us. Turned out he was a professor of architecture at the University of Washington, Seattle. And indeed, so her dying request was that he cooperate with us for this. He drove all the way from Seattle to see this place, and he helped us design much of it. He is not registered in BC, so we had to get a BC architect as well, who really didn't need to have ideas, but we needed his stamp. This is where the transition from shacks to mansions what happens is you have to conform to all of the rules, regulations, and conventions. We got the code book. We're, we're capable of doing these things. The code book is about two inches thick. It looks like a telephone directory, the building codes. And we had to negotiate all kinds of levels of things, including how many people we could stay here. I went into town to talk to one of the people who were in charge of this, what's your occupancy rate and so forth. And he said, you know, you can have up to 10 people in a house, but they have to be related by blood. And I already had researched this because I said, you know, you're way behind time. The, you don't have to be related by blood. You, 
these are the days of um, all kinds of alternative marriages, etc. And you'd better catch up. So <laughs> he had to look it up himself and he said, oh, yes, you're right. <laughs> you don't have to be related by blood. And there are clauses left over from the old Catholic days, special zoning for monasteries and nunneries. And you, of course, all the monks and nuns are not related, are they? And they live in residential code buildings. So we ended up with residential demands, which are much easier than commercial demands. And we had to also negotiate with the council in town to get approval for building cooties. We had to have soil engineers, structural engineers, civil engineers, surveyors, endless visits by the building inspector, then endless visits by the electrical inspector, the septic inspector, on and on. A lot of secondary costs just in those kind of visits. You, you are obliged to pay for these, although you have no choice but to accept the services. This was a different world for me, but it did remind me of the Vinaya. So monks have to live by hundreds and hundreds of very detailed rules. So you just face it and do it as you would follow the Vinaya. And in the end, we managed to do it all up to code, etc. We participated, all of us, all of the monks, the novices, the Anagarikas, and there was a, quite a stream of different characters coming through. And this is, again, a two-by-four stage where all kinds of characters are here for a period of time and they can make themselves useful carrying boards or building things. They have different skills and varieties and their personalities are different. At the same time, it's not a peaceful environment for meditation or anything like this. It's just this work circus going on. And some of them are professionals. We had a few professional carpenters, but we have picked up the monastics and others who have been around the monastic life have picked up skills along the way. So we really know something about all of these trades as well. So we were quite useful and helpful. Certain things we did on our own because we couldn't afford to do. We had to uh, do all the siding on this building. It's a huge building and it had just Tyvek if you're familiar with the paper, a building paper, keep the weather out. So then we had to estimate the siding and then we had to hire a, a lift and scaffolding and do it. We worked for weeks and weeks and weeks. I did all the cutting on the ground of the panels. So I do know my way around the table saws and circular saws and drills and hammers and nail guns, etc. And we had various adventures along the way. Up None of us really got hurt, except one of the carpenters who, in a, who was using a nail gun to finish a floor and he popped it through his foot. He shot a nail through his foot, nailed himself to the floor. And the other carpenter knew what to do. <laughs> so he gingerly pulled the nail out of the floor without pulling it out of his foot. We had to leave it through the foot and through the boot till we get to the hospital. And they have special equipment to cut a nail. And you don't want to pull it out of the foot because it might be, an artery might be blocked by the nail and you don't want to just bleed. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> we took him in there and they decrucified him <laughs> and brought him back heavily 
doped up on painkillers, but he attended the evening sitting as well. He was a meditator carpenter. And we have pictures of him nodding off in the, <laughs> in the sitting. So these are actually very few people got hurt in the process. We were quite mindful and careful, but we did take chances with various things because we're not professionals. But strangely enough, as I say, the monastics managed to weather it and sometimes the professionals got hurt and we didn't. We had to deal with everything like the invasion of cattle because we're in range country and we hadn't fenced the property. This is formerly a water hole from Stump Lake Ranch, one of the big ranches in British Columbia. These, some of the biggest ranches in the world are in British Columbia. The Gang Ranch and Stump Lake Ranch and all kinds of giant, 100 square mile ranches. The only reason was it privately sold was it was a watering hole. And the cattle would be released up here for months at a time and they would be just surrounding the place, munching any flowers that we wanted to grow or anything. The site was a building disaster site. All kinds of used materials and stuff were left over from the original construction. And it was, there was nothing growing, it was all clay. So it was very ugly looking. And we had to bring in bulldozers and rototillers and everything to make our roads. And in fact, we had to get permission from the forestry to mine decomposed granite to surface the roads. They were nothing but mud bogs. And we hired dump trucks and various kind of excavators to bring in a hundred truckloads of decomposed gravel for the road surfaces. This was a major project on all levels and we had to find out how to do these things and nobody's taking care of you, you're an orphan. <laughs> you're on your own, you have no guaranteed sources of income. Remember we stretched our budget, now we're in for more than half a million dollars and all kinds of things and then finally we run out of money and we have to go to the bank again. Remember the story of the bank from the previous one? It was just like down to the wire. And this time though, we had some assets. So we actually could approach the credit union and they did give us a loan, I think 150,000 this time. And they, with a fairly high interest rate too, they, they really didn't, weren't tender with us. But we took it and we had to have co-signers again, like four, I mean, a mill worker doesn't have to, we have to. <laughs> Even though we could show that in the last three or four years, we had huge income coming in in a very reliable way and so forth, and we were responsible and we paid off a previous mortgage in one year. Still, they know when they got a fish on the hook. <laughs> we went in and we, again, I brought in kind of ideas from monasteries in Asia where the rains retreat, which is kind of our winter retreat, is non-guest retreat. And so we, we shut down to everybody and just went in for a retreat, but you have no income coming in there. So we really come out in the spring, very skinny, just down to, you know, small, very small left. So in some ways I, I began to realize you can't just shut down all the time. You need a uh, flow of people because we're not near a urban center where people can offer dana. Most of the other monasteries in North America have 80% uh, of their food brought to them by people who wanting to donate food. We're so remote that that doesn't happen. 
the stewards have to drive to town and buy food and bring it back, etc. So there are all kinds of different conditions here. And we are also not particularly supported from Thailand or Sri Lanka. We have a little support from the ethnic communities, but primarily this is a Canadian-supported project. We don't have any uh, links to very proud and wealthy Asian Buddhists who love to support something in the West. We don't have that, which is good in a way because we haven't relied on... It it has to be real. It, It has to be somebody in this country has to appreciate what we're doing and support it. And so it it is based on real support. And so we proceeded, and after a few years, we conducted the first ordinations. And this is primarily sort of one of the first formal ordinations of Canadian monks by Canadian monks. And I had Ajahn Pasano come up and organize it, and you can see it ended up on the front cover of one of the books, Buddhism in Canada, the first formal Theravada ordination by Canadian-born monks in Canada of Canadian-born monks. So that is a mark, a very important mark, which the Buddha said, the sasana, the church, the religious organization, has not arrived in a country until ordinations of people who live or born and lived in that country by people in that country are performed. And so then, now, the sasana has arrived in Canada. And so we are, uh, I am training these monks, and I am trying to finish the building. I'm also not given up endless traveling and teaching outside of that. So this is quite a circus going on. At the same time, we keep up a very strong practice, and we keep up the all-night sittings as well. And absolutely regularly, the early morning sittings, the 5 a.m. sittings, the evening sittings. I also give everyday tea times. I make recordings and we develop a library collection of audio that is the largest on the planet. Various people show up who, I don't know about this, but people show up and we collect all these recordings of Dhamma talks given for years or decades from all kinds of monks around the world. And we put them up for free on the internet. We had a collection of over 3,000 talks uh, up there, which was certainly the largest you know, available Dhamma collection on the planet. And it was all available for free. So we really started to make the connection with the media as well. Our own access to the media, not the mainstream media. We also recorded Retreats, I I used to carry a small disc recorder around for these 10-day retreats, and I recorded them all myself. I'd come back, and they would be in the library. And then eventually, they would make themselves up to the uh, internet. These are rather obscure and not technically all that well done. The Dhamma is okay, but the technical aspects are wanting. And this is, in fact, why we're doing these very videos and so forth. We're trying to up our the quality of the technology, the recordings, and also collect the stories in the Dhamma as well. So we're trying to get with the times. We may not just be with the times, we may be ahead of the times. And this is not unusual for monks. You shouldn't think of monks as beings from the fifth century. 
monks in some way have always been the future. They have been the leading edge of things. And you will probably note that in the culture, the leading edge of interest is such topics as mindfulness and yoga centers and meditation. And these are the kind of the cutting edge of things, not ancient at all. And the mediums of communication, of course, in the West, monks have always been the literate people, the ones who wrote the books, who kept the knowledge even of the sciences. And also in the East, monks have always been the most informed and literate. So the, the use of this media, this very video and etc., is not something strange for monks to do. One of them, our obligations as monks is to communicate, to share our experiences and to make, share them freely and make them available. And so, as you heard, I have been barnstorming the country on planes and buses and cars and stuff, but reaching a small audience, but now we can reach a larger audience. And this is what we are also doing with Birkin. So this is a larger place. I can have many, many people come through here. So we do have the accommodation. We managed to get all the approvals and build the place for 25 people and ordain monks. So I ordained six monks and have trained many lay people. I also have a Meiji, Sister Mon, and that's an unusual thing as well. In the Western monasteries, I think I'm the only one with a Meiji. There are female orders, the Siladara order, etc. but I'm the only one who's imported the Thai traditional structure, which is the Meiji order. And I, I did that purposely. I trust it because it's, it's many centuries old. It has worked. So in attempting to bring these things into the West, I, I'm trying to use models that are fairly conservative. Sometimes I seem to be radically liberal, but I'm actually ultra conservative. <laughs> I'm conservative in the sense of being a preserver of things or conservationist. I'm a conservationist. I am also dedicated ecologist. So I like to preserve forests. I like to preserve wisdom. I like to conserve things that work. So I'm not just somebody who likes change for its own sake. I am very suspicious of some new ideas in history, all kinds of disastrous new ideas. And one of the reasons I'm a monk is that I explored those ideas and found them not humanly satisfactory. There's some very powerful scientific ideas, but they're not humanly satisfactory. The only place I've really found that human satisfaction is in the orthodox historical teachings of the Buddha. So I'm keen on preserving those because they work. And this, what this place is, is a large, a large building that has required a huge amount of human sweat and blood sometimes, nails through your feet, <laughs> and a lot of tears as well. These places don't happen, and inner, inner development doesn't happen without tears. Ajahn Chah even said to the monks that, you know, if you haven't cried three times, you're, you know, you, 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 you're probably not practicing hard enough. So 
When I say that, actually, Sister Mon likes to rib me. So how many times have you cried? <laughs> I never tell her. <laughs> never. You have to be somewhat cut out for this, and I, I think I am. Just the, the fortunate circumstances of how I was raised and various things have fallen into place so that being an abbot of a monastery in the wilderness in Canada requires a certain fortunate background. And I'm, I just happen to have that background. So it hasn't been that hard for me. But it's been hard enough. And it has, though, succeeded. And I'm somewhat surprised by that. It sounds like an unlikely project, and I was fully prepared for it not to succeed. And I'm, I'm okay with failure because there's other aspects than your efforts which go into making something succeed. There's all kinds of things that can happen, such as giant pandemics of flu that immobilize the world and paralyze the economies and so forth. So we'll be fi find out whether we can succeed through this and then, of course, there was the great economic recession of 2008, which you know happened here. There was the great pine beetle infestation, 2005 to 2008. Half the half the the forest of British Columbia died and fell over, including everything around us. So this beautiful, pristine pine forest that was we were around, we were surrounded by, died, and. All that came out of it is we had infinite firewood. <laughs> uh, but it doesn't look pretty. Things fell over. But we've stayed long enough for it to, to grow back. So there's all kinds of possibilities of, of failure. There's no guarantee of support. We don't do fundraisers. We just trust that people will appreciate the values of this. And we live as frugally as required. And I would say that the last 20 years have not been, I would not call them extremely ascetic or frugal in, in our requirements compared to living in a broken down shacks or caves or something like this. But it, it is always, we're in the, one of the wealthiest countries in the world in one of the wealthiest times of the world and everything costs a lot of money, building buildings and running buildings and maintaining things. And this has to be considered. It's, it, it is fabulously expensive to build a monastery and to maintain it and without any luxury or indulgence involved in that. At the same time, do enough people in this time appreciate the, our values? Certainly, we see that the, the, what used to be that the biggest buildings in, in a city used to be cathedrals. The spire of a cathedral was usually the top, the highest building in the, in the city. They used to even have building bylaws that prevent anybody from building higher than the highest uh, cathedral spire. Now the highest buildings are bank towers, like the World Trade Center. You remember that? The World Trade Center? It's like an antenna for a lot of distress in the world. The international money is the root of much evil. 
And when you make those the highest antennas in the world, instead of religious values, you're in a different world. So we're trying to see if we can survive in this world. And we're building buildings and creating living spaces which are suitable for Canadians. This is not Thailand in the Northeast. I mean, I told many stories about the austerities of the villagers who lived there. But we are, the Canadians that I cater to here and talk to are not raised that way, and we have to adapt our situation to them as well. But what I've found is they're very, very sincere, and in many ways they're much more eager than people who are raised in a Buddhist culture to really understand the details of the Buddhist teaching and to practice the meditation. And many of the monks who come, who are Western and come back to a, recognize that the virtues of the West is that a small number of people are interested, but they're very interested and they want to meditate. In Asia, they're all sort of born into it, but many of them do not meditate, do not take it seriously. They take it for granted. And they, they tend to just uh, offer food or something like that to monasteries. That's their connection. It's a value system in their life, but it's not intensely and interestingly taken up. That is also the case for when Asians come to the West, sometimes they rediscover Buddhism and they start coming to the monasteries and meditating, which they haven't done in Asia. So this is some of the paradoxes of, of the West and our experience of the West. This has succeeded each year and it's always amazing to me. We, every year we have an annual general meeting and we assess how were the donations? Do we make it? Can we, well, can we finish the garage? Can we buy a tractor? When we first came here, we, we are seven kilometers from the nearest gravel road, <laughs> seven kilometers of logging road, and we had no way to clear it. And this is a harsh five-month winter of snow. And we were stuck in here, and sometimes we couldn't, we, we, we called graders and so forth. Sometimes they were too busy. Well, there's no way out. We just had to deal with it. and went on for years until somebody finally offered us a tractor. Because we were, we were a match, saving all our nickels and dimes. Maybe we could, maybe we could buy a tractor. Maybe. And then one day a man said, I'll buy you one. And then, so for 15 years, we've had our own tractor and we could actually plow our own roads. But of course, you've got to learn all about tractors and diesel tractors and snow plows on diesel tractors and buckets for bringing in firewood and dragging firewood in with tractors. This is a very, this is a pioneer life. And you cannot be aloof from this. And I said, I'm going to my kuti. I don't have these. I'm a monk. I'm, I live in the spiritual world, etc. This is not the case. And in the forest tradition, you will find that there is a blend of practical skills and spiritual skills. And you have to bring your practice into the practical world. And at the same time, you need to remember that you are a monk and that you must cultivate your practice. You must learn the Dhamma very deeply and fluently, especially if you're going to be a teacher. So this is one of the things that has come fairly easy to me in terms because I've, I have long history of you know being educated and 
being very keenly interested in ideas, philosophy, all kinds of ideas. So it, to study the suttas and to extract the ideas and then to be able to explain them to people is kind of uh, comes fairly easy to me. And I really want to make it easy for people as well. So that's up to very recently that has taken place in person at the monastery. One of the things I say to people is that I've given 10,000 interviews, 10,000 one-on-one interviews. That is a gross underestimate. I have done many more than that, thousands more than that. So I sit one-on-one with a person, sometimes up to an hour, and talk to them and ask them about their lives and how they think and how they feel. And then I offer them reflections from having spent hours and hours, days, weeks, years, immersed in the suttas and in practice. I try to format that and try to give them something that's useful to them. And so that's one of the ways you teach people one at a time. But with the new availability of media such as this, I can offer these ideas and also the the processed ideas. So I have had to spend years sometimes working, sometimes being misled in some ways by conventional teachings that have been going on for centuries that are actually off the, have gone off the mark. And at some point in my life, I realized this, there's a mistake here and I have to correct that. And then I have to, having figured that out and having taken years to figure it out, I can now save people a lot of time uh, from not going down that mistaken idea. So that's part of, that's my job is to, to really look at these things critically, look at the history of them, ask myself whether these have been distorted through time and, and try to find the way back. And then I have to distill that and I have to put it into the proper language for people of my, this culture. So I have an advantage too, in that I am speaking to people from my culture. And I do, being 66 now, by the way, I came here at 46, right? Or 47. And so the 20 years here, it will be 20 years in June, um, have been from 47 to, it will be to 67. And so I'm an old guy and I've had, but I've had lots of years to to be immersed in this Canadian culture, have stepped out of it, gone to Asia, gone into the Buddhist culture, come back and I can see, it helps me see in both directions. So it, it helps me, I've stepped out of this culture, but I can remember what the formative ideas are of this culture. And that's part of, trying to make yourself a teacher and an abbot in this monastery, in this culture at this time. So these are a few of the factors that converge in at this, this stage of Brick Monastery. This is, of course, the third monastery. And there's a whole series of monasteries before that that weren't started by me. But this is the third monastery that I've started, the Shack Monastery, Princeton, the Intermediate Monastery and this being the final monastery. And so I have 
a lot of things are converging and still is coming to a kind of a ripeness now. It has not gone downhill. It's actually gotten better and better and better. And it is at a ripeness. But I, I do want to preserve this because I, I'm just getting old. And I'm, if I'm still got my marbles together, I want to use those as well as I can because I have lots of experience now. And I want to keep my time for this expression of Dhamma, particularly, and less uh, carpentry, <laughs> architectural design, all of this stuff, including traveling. So I have renounced traveling. I have renounced training junior monks. I have devoted myself now to the meditative cultivation of large groups of lay people and using media to expand it outwards. And I think that's my particular niche, niche in, this, in this Sangha. Other monasteries will train young monks because they need to, we need to have monks. And we also need to train women. And one of the things that I like to do is train women in the monastery. We don't have a lot of resources for bhikkhunis, but we have resources for women. And, and since men have good resources for being bhikkhus, I want to devote quite a bit of the resources here for maximizing good training for lay women and so that they spend, they can spend months or years in the monastery and become really immersed practitioners. And they also then can be as salt for the dish. They will flavor the dish. So that's kind of my thing. I, I seem to get along with women. I, got, I had a very good mother and a good sister and lots of women in my family that were, that I just got along with. So it's, I, I feel comfortable with women and uh, not all monks do. And not all monasteries are comfortable for women either. There is a, some issues and problems around that, but I think it is fairly welcoming and comfortable for women to be here. So that's a bit of this, this 20 year s section of this talk.